Welcome to Mintaco Talks, episode 28, and uh, the last of 2021. It's been a great year, and we've talked to some amazing people in the world of de decentralized finance. Uh, in our discussion today on managing risk in the digital asset economy, we'll have an equally interesting discussion. Um, then the year we've, we've, we've excuse me, um, we have a guest who literally wrote the rule book on risk compliance and best practice for digital assets. Um, Julian Saviano, who is the managing director of Promotories, join us. Um, Julian has Julian leads the Promotories fintech and digital asset practice and advises financial institutions, fintech and digital asset firms, and regulatory agencies on implementing risk and compliance strategies. He's got over 20 years in international banking and payments experience. Prior to Promontory, he held various uh, senior leadership positions in risk management, finance strategy, and treasury visa, and has extensive experience with U.S. and international regulators and rated agencies. Um, when it comes to regs, what he doesn't know is probably not worth knowing. Um, Julian, it's great to have you here. Thanks for joining me, Tucker Talks. Thanks, Seamus. Nice to see you again. It's a pleasure. Yeah, likewise. So, I mean, I think one, one issue I think we're going to have is there's a lot to talk about. I think your experience is pretty unique and unfortunately we have 30 minutes, but why don't we kick it off and, you know, we talk about you, you know, writing legislation. I think that's actually a fact, right? You were very involved in crafting the Wyoming legislation. You work very closely with some of the largest institutions in this market. It'd be great to hear a bit about uh, your background and, you know, what you've done in the space. Sure. Thanks, Seamus. Um, so we, we've been very fortunate uh, at Promontory. I've been very fortunate to lead a, a really great team of, of people that over the last couple of years, we've been head down uh, thinking about regulation and supervision in the context of banking for digital assets activities. Uh, and uh, we've, uh, we've done some really amazing work and some great projects, and we've got a lot ahead of us. Um, to, as you alluded to, um, we, we wrote the supervisory guidance for the Division of Banking of Wyoming, um, those of us that are in the crypto space understand, know that you know, Wyoming was one of the very first states in the U.S., was, was the first state in the U.S. to basically approve a crypto banking license. Uh, and so their speedy banks are allowed to custody digital assets. Uh, they're allowed to facilitate trading. They're allowed to facilitate staking, lending, and all other manner of activities in addition to uh, deposit taking. They're not allowed to lend, actually. They, they're 100% reserve banks. Um, so, um, the, the division of banking, uh, basically issued an RFP, which we were fortunate enough to win. Um, and the nature of that RFP was basically to help them write supervisory guidance so that their bank examiners could go into these institutions and understand the nature of the activities that they're performing. So in a traditional bank examiner, will go in, look at a bank's loan portfolio, understand kind of how they are underwriting those activities and determine, okay. Um, they're managing these in a safe and sound manner. Uh, in this case, they you know, you'd have to go in there and say, how are you managing the, the private keys? Uh, how are you onboarding customers? What sort of due diligence are you doing on them? How are you monitoring transactions? So, and as we all know, there's very heightened kind of AML risks, there's heightened information security risks, there's heightened operational risks whenever you're supporting digital assets, custody, and other related activities. So we had to spend a lot of time, we wrote, I want to say 750 plus pages of very prescriptive and detailed supervisory guidance on how to comply with AML and sanctions requirements in the context of digital assets custody, how to, what are best practices for managing keys and for managing, and, and what are the different models, as you all, as we all know, there's many different models for, for managing, you know, for managing keys, um, how to meet fiduciary requirements. Um, when you're when you're performing as a fiduciary on behalf of your customer and digital assets activities actually present heightened risk as it relates to digital fiduciary responsibilities more so than a traditional activity would 
uh, because there's more discretion that generally you that generally you apply. For example, when you're facilitating a trade uh, of a digital asset on behalf of a customer versus when you're facilitating a trade for a traditional security. Um, and that led us to working uh, extensively with uh, the large banks in the US and internationally that are all lining up to issue, uh, to, to support digital assets custody. Um, but in the context of that, it's a brand new activity. It's a great opportunity for them. But these are very large banks that have very well-established risk and compliance programs. And they need to think about how do I manage these activities in a safe and sound manner? How do I, how do I build risk and compliance programs that my regulators are going to be comfortable with? Um, and outside of Wyoming, you know, there's been a little bit of work that's been done by the OCC in the U.S., and we can, we'll talk about that uh, in terms of the permissibility. Uh, but there's not a lot of supervisory guidance to tell banks how they meet or what the safety and standards, uh, safety and soundness standards actually are. Um, so that's been a fascinating piece of work for us. And that, I guess the third piece of work that we've been doing is we've been working a lot with the digital asset custodians uh, in the U.S., the large institutional custodians, helping them become um, basically banks. And so we've been working closely with Anchorage since the beginning of the year. And we've got several other customers um, that uh, have either Anchorage is, our, is, is the first U.S. chartered uh, national trust bank and the only one operating right now. Um, we have several others that we're supporting uh, at the state and, and federal levels as well. So a fascinating amount of work, um, really interesting. Um, happy to, to talk more about uh, our experiences and, and kind of what we're seeing in the market. It's, it's a fascinating position because I think most advisories are really about complying with existing rules. But you've started with a blank slate right? and help and define what that should be. I mean, how, you know, how, how do you come up with what should be best practices? And what, what are some of those when you're looking at risk and compliance programs? Yeah, really what we did was we, you know, if, if, if you think about it, what we what we did when we started this work was we really scoured the world uh, for any and all supervisory guidance, any and all kind of industry white papers, any and all kind of best practices. We tried to reach out to, you know, the ecosystem of digital assets, custodians, digital asset service providers. You know, we, 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 we built pretty strong relationships with a lot of the market uh, surveillance companies with the transaction monitoring firms, which we still have today. Um, and the idea was to understand kind of what, what, what are you doing today, right? Because, you know, a lot of these digital asset custodians, they are, and I'm, you know, speaking to you, you you're an information security company in your DNA. This is what you do. You manage risk in that way. How do we do that in the context of banking and in the context of digital? And, and that's something that is a, a translation that needs to occur, right? And then layer on top of that, how do we fit, how, how do we think about, uh, how do we think about financial crimes compliance in the context of digital assets? And how do we, and, and so a lot of it was very iterative and it was working directly, you know, with the industry and working directly with the regulators. Interestingly, People always think about risk appetite in the context of like, well, you know, to take, you know, in the industry participants, they decide what risk appetite they want to accept. Regulators also decide which what risk appetite they want to apply. And they'll either going to hold a very, very high bar or they're going to hold, a, you know, or they're going to hold some, they're going to set the bar somewhere in the middle that enables, hopefully will enable some form of innovation um, while also managing risks and keeping the bad guys out as, to the extent that you can. So really, when, when you think about that, you know, we really we really think about um, kind of a few key areas of risk that, that we have to think through. And so, you know, you have to think about the AML and, and sanctions compliance piece. 
you have to think about custody operations. Um, you have to think about fiduciary compliance. Um, you have to think about third-party risk management. This is an, the crypto world is an ecosystem of service providers that plug and play into each other. And um, not many of them are actually used to working with banks. So when the, the higher, the bar is so much higher for vendors, for banks, um, that you really have to think about that as well and think about how you set that bar and think about the, the obligations that banks should have for doing third-party risk management on their vendors. You've got to think about information security, not only in the context of key management, but in the context of the overall prod, prod, uh, program as, as, as it is and how it fits within the different regulatory standards for traditional information security, understanding that there really isn't a standard at a global level for something like key management. Um, there are lots of best practices, but there's no regulatory prescription that tells you how you should do it. Um, really, that's a few things. And I guess the last thing I'll point out is payment system risk. And that's an area, stable coins, people have been talking a lot about stable coins lately. Um, and they talk about, well, you know, how do we think about regulation and how do we think about supervision? Well, there, there are very well-established payment system risk principles uh, internationally by the CPSS, you know, financial market infrastructures um, in domestically in the U.S. and in several other countries as well. Those principles are perfectly, perfectly, you know, can be applied to stablecoin networks in terms of how they're managed, how they're designed, the risks that you control around them. And so as part of the work that we did in Wyoming, we also wrote a, a payment system risk manual specific to stablecoins and specific to e-money tokens. So really fascinating stuff. Very much so. And I, I was right at the start. There's too much to dive into. So maybe if I pick pick a couple couple of things. I mean, you mentioned. I'd like to follow up in, in a moment about the uh, kind of this risk tolerance approach that you mentioned. The regulators need to take. I mean, I think that's super interesting and kind of will inform us when we're talking about you know different gradations of that globally. Um, but you know, when you're, I'd be curious to know when when you're engaging, you know, with the regulators, who leads who? I mean, how do you connect and communicate with the regulators? when there isn't any regulation on the, on these issues on, on the best practice you've just been running through. Yeah, it's a good, so that, that's, that's, it's a great question. Um, and maybe I'll use an example. So when we work with a client that is, that is going through a supervisory uh, that is, that is applying for, you know, for some form of registration or some form of a license, be it a national bank license or a state license or whatever, you know, crypto registrate registrar, um, there are certain requirements that there's a we we the good news at what at Promontory we have a lot of experience actually helping even traditional firms achieve banking licenses. So when we got the opportunity to work with crypto firms, it was really an extension of of uh, what we already kind of have in our DNA. So it's it's very much a collaborative process where in the in the in the case of of crypto or digital assets, you have to be very you have to over communicate in terms of typically when you're when you're applying for some form of license you create a business plan and as part of that business plan you tell the regulators here's what i plan on doing for the next three years these are the types of clients that i'm going to have this is the type of services that i'm going to provide this is the technology that i'm going to rely on these are the risk and compliance programs that i'm going to that i'm going to establish to support these activities this is the type of corporate governance that i'm going to have um, and hopefully it provides them. And these are the financials, right? This is how much capital I'm going to allocate to this business so that even if things go bad, you're, you know, I've got enough capital to support this business, at least over what they call a de novo period, which is typically about three years. Now, in a digital assets firm, you have to over communicate because you can't just say, 
I'm going to, I'm going to support digital assets custody. Well, how are you going to do that? And what technology will you use? How is it structured? How does it meet certain standards of fiduciary compliance? And so you have to, there's a tremendous amount of documentation that needs to go in, into place. There's a, what we would do with, with, with uh, what we do, what we do with our customers is we typically have several, before we even start examinations or pre, pre-application examinations, we have, we schedule several working sessions with the regulators, which are, you know, between an hour and two hours for different subject matter experts to literally walk them through, this is how we plan, or this is how we do digital assets custody. This is how we facilitate trading. This is how our customer onboarding works. This is how our withdrawal processes work. This is how, so literally walking them through, helping them understand in layman's terms, the, you know, how does a, how does a digital asset custodian process a request to withdraw all Bitcoin? And how do you do that in, by human? What, what are the humans doing and who's involved and what controls are in place? And then what's the technology doing? And how does the technology work with each other to basically make sure that if that withdrawal request comes in, that it's uh, authenticated, it comes from the right person, that you, we know that we have comfort that it does, and that then it's processed within the bank in a way that doesn't uh, that 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 isn't going to create any errors and also isn't going to lead to any kind of nefarious activity. And so those are the types of things that that we have to walk them through. And if I shift over to the other area of a huge focus where we spend a tremendous amount of time with regulators, it's financial crimes compliance. And there, we also have to think, we have to explain to them, why is it that, you know, we've built for our clients a financial crimes program that is bespoke and addresses the specific risks that these activities present. And as we know in the digital assets world, this is, there's nothing generic about digital assets custody. Every model is different. Every application, every every installation is different. Every instance that every client wants a sl- slightly different, you know, bell and whistle. The client base is different. The customers are different. The risks are different. The transactions are different. And so you really have to, the, the geographic footprint is different. Institutional versus retail or both, something in the middle. So really we have to explain to them and over explain to them, how is it that we've done that? And we typically start by building a risk assessment so that a regulator can actually see and understand first the risks and then how am I managing those risks and, and how, does that, how does that meet the safety and standards or how do we expect that it should meet the safety and standards, safety and soundness standards of, of, of what regulators are. But it's very much a iterative process. You, don't, you never wanna be teaching a regulator. That's not something that you really wanna do or that they appreciate, but you definitely have to help them with education on this new technology and how it applies into the in, in the in the traditional banking world. Sounds like a fine balance. Don't don't teach but educate. <laughs> so I mean with any specific challenges, I mean getting a getting a banking charter, I mean obviously as you mentioned, you've done it for um, for Anchorage and you're working with others. Any specific challenges around around going through that that process? Beyond what yeah. you've just described in terms of the kind of over over educating around every step? There were tremendous amount of challenges, and, I, and I'll say that you know my friends at Anchorage are you know they're true pioneers. They're wonderful people to work with, uh, and they are true pioneers. And, and they I think they very early on understood the benefits of of, of basically aspiring to the highest level of supervisory 
uh, of, of supervision uh, in the U.S. at least, right? Because the federal federal supervision is definitely, and they understood that when they want to, if they want to work with large institutions, that that's something that you really that you really want to aspire to. And so for them, it was a it was a it's a bit of massive investment in time and effort. Um, it's there's been a huge amount of uh, uh, there's been a lot of challenges. Um, I think that the challenges have been in in helping again going back to working with the with with the regulators in a collaborative way um, I will say that um, in this case the OCC which was the the entity that, that has the office of the currency the controller in the US that's granted them a license they have a tremendous group of you know of career examiners they're tremendous professionals um, they took a very keen interest early on um, and they worked really really hard to quickly get up to speed and learn the technology um, there were some challenges. So, you know, one, one example was, and I was talking about, uh, you know, withdrawals in the context of fiduciary compliance. In the yeah. U.S., for example, you have rules which require you to have two human beings basically uh, to, you know, to approve a withdrawal, right? And, and in some cases, that's not, that's not, that's not, that doesn't fit within the context of how, how digital assets custody works because you have very strong logical controls, so we really had to work with our regulators, with this, with those regulators, to help them understand how logical controls, in some ways, can be stronger than human controls, uh, because they're hard coded, and because it's not just two humans; it's probably a quorum of at least five humans on the back end that controls the logic that goes into those that goes into those controls. So that was one example. Um, you know, a couple of other examples are helping them understand how it is that you perform. Um, how it is that in some cases you have more information and can do and can do a lot more due diligence when you're when you're doing uh, KYC and and enhanced due diligence for digital assets custody when you're actually monitoring transactions. The blockchain gives you a lot more information uh, depending on the asset that you're looking at than than in other than other traditional assets. So you can actually gather more information. And so there was a little bit of that. I think the other the other thing to understand is. Um, what are the you know whenever we're doing one of these uh, one of these uh, bank licensing engagements it's not just specific to digital assets you really have to you have to reach a balance with the regulator to determine what is the appropriate level of staffing of size of capital for the active to support the activities of this specific institution and you know, everybody wants more capital, everybody wants more resources in order to support that, but you really need to come up to the equilibrium and what's the right level. And that's something that is always a dialogue with a regulator and it's always a is always a, is always a conversation. Um, but I think overall, and we had to build a lot, so in, in a very short period of time, but I think overall, uh, you know, very, very satisfied with the work that we did there and very, you know, very privileged to work with, you know, to get the opportunity to work with them and with the regulators on some very groundbreaking stuff I think has been that really hopefully sets the standard for for those to come. I imagine you're, you're basically at the forefront of all this change. I mean, just kind of dive in one more question into the kind of the, that U.S. experience. I mean, to what degree was it? You know, I mean, Brian Brooks is running the OCC for a while and obviously had a huge, um, you know, I won't say bias, but it was very open to embracing this industry. Um, and we see that now with his congressional testimony yesterday, which is one of the kind of strongest strongest. Uh, proponents of the industry on an ongoing basis. To what degree is, is some of the, the regulation we see in the US or regulators a bit personality driven to, or, or how, how far into the fabric has the acceptance of digital assets now reached in these, in the, from a, regular, a regulator's perspective? 
Yeah, I, I do think it's a little bit personality driven. I think, unfortunately, it's become slightly political um, right now. And I think that, you know, it's as, as with, unfortunately, everything in the U.S. and maybe maybe different parts of the world also, yeah. the, the different parties tend to pick sides. And because one party picked one side, the other one just automatically picks the other side. And that's not necessarily correct or true. Um, I, I, I've um, been a little disappointed with the with with the with the recent uh, stance that the OCC has had, in particular, um, on on how on, on on basically on on in on fostering and facilitating innovation. Um, Chairman Sue's made some comments that you know digital assets firms, if they want to become banks, they now have to also apply to become a bank holding company and also apply for FDIC insurance. And frankly, there's no legal basis for that in any law. It's not something that you can actually just say, do it. You actually have to change laws in Congress to do that if you'd like. So to me, it's just a, it's a tactic to discourage digital asset banks, digital asset firms from becoming banks. Um, and I, I don't believe that he's speaking unilaterally. They've had this sprint that uh, with all the federal agencies in the US and they've come up with certain position points. Uh, and I think that he's speaking on behalf of broadly more broadly the federal that you know the federal bank regulators specifically um and i think it's i think that that um, that is unfortunate because i think it slows down innovation uh, now what it does do the de facto what it will do de facto is it says digital asset firms you are technology service providers you are not going to be regulated entities anymore the banks are going to be the regulated entities that, that perform that activity and will and will contract with you and for some firms that's their business plan. That's what they want to do. That's great. But for some other firms, you know, I think it inhibits competition. And that's not something that I think we anybody wants. Um, but it's unfortunate that that is the net result of what's happening. I don't really think that we'll see any more, any more approvals at the federal level for, for digital asset firms anytime soon. Because it's, it, m meeting bank holding company requirements is an impossible standard for digital asset yeah. firms to meet. Impossible, first of all, because it's not legal. They actually can't, even, even if they wanted to apply, they wouldn't be able to. Um, so to me, it's, it's, it's disappointing. Um, I didn't get a chance to actually see, to see Brian's uh, uh, commentary yesterday. Uh, but I can only imagine. Um, I know how disappointed he is, and I, and I and and, uh, and uh, unfortunately, I, I think that many many people, not just in in the digital assets industry, but also in in supervision and regulation, are disappointed as well. Uh, but hopefully, those stances change. I think that what happens is, you know, maybe use another example of federal kind of uh, kind of guidance. The president's working group um, guidance on stablecoins that came out a few weeks ago. Um, I would give that a C minus uh, in terms of uh, in terms of a grade. I don't think it was very well. I, I thought it was it was done a bit hastily. It wasn't as comprehensive as it should be. It conflated a little bit of the technology in terms of the how you how you manage or the, how you actually build stablecoin networks. Um, as I mentioned before, you know there's pretty well established guidance on payment system risk guidance, yeah. and it's not that difficult to apply that to stablecoin networks. Um, and I think that you know. Uh, a better approach might have been to actually consult the agencies that have written supervisory guidance on stablecoin networks. And if you look at the sources who, who they spoke to, they didn't speak to New York State. New York State is supervising several very large stablecoin networks right now. Yeah. They didn't speak to Wyoming. Wyoming has written a book on stablecoin regulation. So disappointing from the federal agencies. Hopefully that changes. There are, there are several senators, including Senator Lemus, Lemus from uh, from uh, Wyoming, who is very very outspoken 
uh, in terms of being an advocate for the agency, for, for the industry, for digital assets. She and Senator Cinema have been very, you know, have been very vocal. They've set up the Financial Innovation Caucus of the U.S. Senate Banking Committee. And the idea is to educate their fellow lawmakers on the benefits of blockchain and on the benefits of responsible uh, innovation and responsible regulation. And so hopefully those efforts, you know, bear fruit um, and, and move forward. Uh, but I, I've just been disappointed over the last couple of months, and I know many people in the industry have, unfortunately. Well, I, I've been of the same opinion. I, I was, let's say, positively impressed yesterday with some of the discussions, of the, the, the congressional discussions, because for once it seemed to be a nonpartisan issue. Both sides were actually coming out much more supportive of potentially uh, things like stablecoins that actually potentially become a proponent for the you know continued strength of U.S. dollar, dominance of U.S. dollars, as opposed to a you know, something that's usurping it. So. I think there's some positive signs there anyway on kind of what looks like a dark horizon. But maybe just step back for a second. So I think, you know, maybe TAC, you know, talked about that that risk-based approach regulators are taking potentially other jurisdictions. We did see last week, I think, even Australia in their, in their um, uh, in one of the, I think it was the Treasury speech, basically talked about coming legislation around, around payments related to cryptocurrency. So they're very much embracing that as what you described. Um, and we've seen other jurisdictions where we operate, places like Singapore, um, Switzerland, Germany, all being all allowing innovation to to move ahead, and we've seen basically the banks as a result embrace that and, and moving ahead quite aggressively with initiatives. Um, you know, which countries? How, how would you look at the different countries in terms of the risk based approach to you know balancing this regulation and innovation? Yeah, I mean, Switzerland has clearly been a leader, right, for several years now. They've fostered innovation in the industry. They've 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 built clear rules and and they've got bank charters. They've chartered a couple of banks. Yeah already yep. and really certainty is really what they're looking for, right? Regulatory certainty, you know, of course, hopefully some reasonable rules as well, but in the end, just give us any rules. Let's give us the rules and let's figure out how to do this in the context of, because we don't want basically to use an industry term, the rug pulled from out from under us after we've, you know, invested in building a very, you know, in, in, invested in building a business. And then all of a sudden you change the rules at the 11th hour. Uh, and and I and I can't launch my business anymore, or I can't support my business anymore. So really clear rules, and I think it, the the you know Finma, the MAS in Singapore, as you mentioned, Bafin, you know they've got clear registration requirements. They have clear information requests. They have clear permissibility standards. Right, some of them are a little bit more restrictive than others. Like people would argue, MAS is a little bit more risk averse, um, and Switzerland is a, is a little bit is a, is a little bit more. You know that they'll allow a little bit more. Really, all of that is depends on it takes it, that's a dynamic on every on, in every day in any and every day, right? If I think about like what are some of the areas you know, that actually that actually you know contribute to the risk appetite of these act of these of, of digital assets custody solutions, it is in some ways it is the design and the controls, right? Because that's mm -hmm. the foundation. But the other piece is what assets do you actually support and which ones don't you support? And that is really contributes to, you know, there's thousands and thousands of tokens out there. And those tokens have very different attributes in terms of whether they lend themselves to the appropriate level of, of you know, financial crimes compliance, who the, what the governance structures are, whether they should be considered a security or not. Are they a fraud or not a fraud? So in supporting custody or trading or lending of those activities, you are scaling up or scaling down your risk appetite. That's an area that I think regulators are beginning to understand. Um, and, you know, one of the things that the federal regulators asked us about very early on, how do, how do you make a decision on which at risk, on which token you're going to support and which ones you're not going to support? And that, I think it'll be a really interesting evolving process. 
So clearly that's still a challenge. How, how do you think firms are going to look at uh, going one step beyond that and looking at DeFi or even as far as DAOs? Is, this some, is there a framework they can start thinking about that actually could get them involved? You know, I, I, if I, if I like, I, I think it's very interesting. It, it, DeFi is a very, it's very interesting because DeFi is essentially it's going back to coin due diligence. It's a token, right? So you have to di dissect the different parts of that token. How is it established? What is the underlying activity? What is the governance behind it? You know, does that give you a certain level of comfort that these activities can be performed in some way? I think that the idea that DeFi or DAOs are somehow going to live outside of the regulatory perimeter as long as they're performing activities that are otherwise supervised or regulated, that's not going to happen in any level of scale. If you're facilitating trading, eventually you will have to apply to be a broker dealer or to have some other form of registration that will that will require you because you're performing those activities. And there's a certain level of consumer and 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 you know regulation that needs and and protections that need to be in place in that sense as well. In terms of DAOs, there's a the Wyoming law is a really interesting one right. uh, because it actually allows DAOs to become LLCs. Uh, what's interesting about I think that the Constitution DAO got it on everybody's you know front page to you know how is it that someone raised you know people raised forty million dollars in six days uh, and came within a dollar of uh, you know probably the execution wasn't the best but an illustration of the power of the of of that of that technology and I think what's interesting about where they're looking at where were the faults and may have been in the governance and that really is the central part. That's the centralized part of the DAO that I think you're never going to lose if you're operating in a regulated space, because there needs to be a throat to choke. There needs to be someone to keep accountable for, you know, maintaining these standards. And so there has to be some basic level of centralization within the DAO, even if most of the activities perform are performed in a decentralized way. Absolutely. We've had the same discussions here. I mean, do you, do you see other states or other jurisdictions embracing similar regulation, regulations around DAOs that uh, Wyoming has? I hope so. I, I, hope that, I hope that we see something like that at the federal level soon. So hopefully. That would be exciting. Well, as I expected, we, we run we're almost run effectively out of time. So um, we will have to have you back and dive into a lot of these subjects more deeply because I think we've only scratched the surface. But uh, Julian, it's been a real pleasure, pleasure having you here. And uh, you know, thanks for your time. Anything else you would like to wrap up with before we before we cut it? No, just thank you very much for your time, Seamus. It was a pleasure as always, uh, and I look forward to talking again soon. Thanks, Julian. So this was the um, unfortunately this is the last episode of 2021. The good news is we'll be back in 2022. So on behalf of everyone at Potaco, thank you for joining us. Thanks for your support this year, and all the best for the holidays. And see you in 2022. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Julian. Thank you. Bye.